0: Amen, thanks Rob. Well, I wanna start by talking to you about the, uh, the rapture. That was a joke. <laughs> Good start. Uh, Someone we'll give them a second to figure out what's going on with the, the mic, but uh, if there are any kids left in the room, you can go to your classroom. <laughs> Um, a couple things I want to just put on your radar uh, as we start this morning, a few dates of reminder. It's really the same date, but with two uh, events. The first is on uh, March 26th, so in a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to do a training if you want to help volunteer with our kids' ministry area. So that includes existing volunteers or people who might want to become a volunteer. I'm going to turn this off while I do—you uh, guys got it? Okay. Um, anyways, if you want to serve in our kids' ministry area, we require a few things, and the training is how we walk you through uh, how to do that. So uh, that's on uh, March the 26th, and then later that evening, um, we're doing our branch school of theology on the study of salvation, which is the, the fancy word is soteriology, and um, so we're, we're excited to be able to do that. That'll be right here at the Park and Rec at uh, 5 o'clock. 5.30, something like that. If you show up at 5 o'clock and it's at 5.30, you'll be early. If you show up at 5.30 and it's at 5, you will be late. Uh, what if we had a mass crowd walk in in about 30 minutes, like, where's everybody? Um, and then the last thing, uh, as we get ready to, we're in the Lenten season. Um, but as we get ready to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord uh, on Easter, we will be doing our baptism service, and so we've taught there are a lot of people um, who have expressed a desire to be baptized, and so we, we the way that we do that is we do it in the parking lot because we're not allowed to put lots of water on a basketball court. For obvious reasons, um, <clears throat> something about warped wood doesn't help the ball dribble. So we do that outside, but that will be on Easter Sunday. So if you're in the room and you've been like, man, I, I've never been baptized, but I'm a follower of Jesus, I want to declare uh, God's saving of my life, then we, we want you to participate in that. And so uh, that will be Easter Sunday right after the service. It's really just part of the service. It's just the last thing that we do on Easter. Easter. Okay, so let's jump into Exodus chapter 24. Uh, This morning we're in verses 9 through 18. And again, most of you in the room have been around, so we won't do much of a recap, but we've been going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. And uh, last week, we're kind of kicked off chapter 24, talking about uh, the covenant and obedience and what God was calling his people to do. And this week, we see the kind of the climax of this covenant being confirmed. So what I want to do is I want to read these verses and then like we do most weeks is we're going to come in and take them through chunks, and, uh, and that will be how we handle the morning. So this is the word of the Lord, Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with which the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, "'Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them.'" Verse 15, "'Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire.' On the top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this morning, this time to gather together as the body of Christ and to worship you, to praise you, to sing of your glory. God, I pray as we dive into this text that you will help us to see clearly what you would have for us. God, we pray for those brothers and sisters who um, are on the road for spring break. Uh, Just pray for safe travels in in the rain. And uh, God, we just pray as um, in all things that we would be imitators of your son, Jesus. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first question I think is appropriate to ask, and this will kind of catapult us into the rest of the morning, is what's happening on the mountain? And really, I think the, the best way to describe what's happening right now is God is calling Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel to worship him. That's what's happening right now on the top of Mount Sinai is God is calling his people to worship him. And so in these first few verses, 9 through 11, we see that there is communion and fellowship with God. So I'm going to reread those, uh, and then we'll talk about it. So verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Now, don't breeze past that. Okay, Now, they're going to give some context of what they saw and how they saw God, uh, because there are some other passages that says no man can look upon the Lord, right? And so we'll talk about that here in a minute. But it says what it says. The Bible says that they saw the Lord. And so whether it was his feet, whether it was a shadow of his feet, whether it was his full face, which I don't think is true, because that's not what the Bible says, um, they saw him. And it was enough for Moses to say that they saw the Lord. What a powerful uh, statement! What a powerful experience! I don't know if you've had seasons or a, a, a time in your life where you just felt the overwhelming presence of the Spirit of God. Um, imagine what it would be like to put your fleshly eyes onto the presence of God. One day that will be true for us. Um, I long for that day, as I'm sure most of you do, uh, when we stand face to face uh, with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, uh, the one who created us in their image, is the way that uh, Genesis 1 describes the creation account. Let us create man in our image, right? And so as we stand before the Lord and put our eyes on him for the first time, can you imagine What this must have been like when even in their broken, sinful nature on the pre-side of the cross, so before Christ's uh, life, death, burial, and resurrection, what it must have been like, even if it was just a glimmer of his heel, uh, that they were able to put their eyes on the God of Israel it continues it says there was under his feet as it were a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel they beheld God and ate and drank moses could only describe god's feet and the surroundings of god's feet right it's pretty majestic right if you see a road paved of sapphire stone. Really, I think the better understanding for us is it would have been a, like a clear rock rather than uh, what sapphires are kind of known for. Uh, really being an image of um, looking into heaven, right, is how this would have been described. But the, the purpose here is that God giving the elders a glimpse of himself, he's declaring that he's a willing participant in this covenant, This is how God is stamping his sign, or he's signing the covenant now with his very presence. And so for him to call Moses and to call the elders up to Mount Sinai to dwell in his presence, to give this glimmer is for God to say, this is of me and this is for me. And he stamps it and signs this covenant. I love this word beheld. Because I think it it adds a tenderness that we don't usually see with a lot of Moses' accounts. Okay, we're going to talk about fire uh, later. Um, But this idea of beheld, it is a tenderness. They beheld God is what it says there in verse 11. And then it says that they ate and they drank, which we'll talk about here in a second. But what does it mean to behold God, right? It doesn't just mean to set their eyes on, on Him. It means that they were captivated by him, that they were seeing now beyond with their eyes, they were seeing with their very heart, with their very soul. They were, they were engulfed, right, with the presence of God. Their gaze was fixed upon him. I love this phrase because I think it, it helps keep us, keep, keep this context uh, for us. He says that he did not, God did not lay a hand on the chief Now, what's the purpose here? It says that he didn't call them there to punish them, okay? God's purpose in calling them up wasn't to punish them, but to fellowship with them. Don't we see this in Jesus? As Jesus goes, as he's calling his disciples, what does he say to them? Drop your neck and what? Come, follow me. It's not that he just wants people hanging on a leash behind him. He wants people to dwell with him. He wants people to be in relationship with him. And then he invites them into a meal, And this is what we see in Exodus, and what a perfect picture of even the communion table. Now, we know nothing about what they actually ate or drank, okay? A few guesses. Um, this isn't in the Bible, but it could be leftover feasts, which even in and of itself is a display of a God's glory and worship as they made a sacrifice, and now they're sharing in that meal together. Or it could have been bread and water, or even bread and wine. I don't know, but if it was bread and wine, and it's this beautiful picture into the covenant meal that we partake, that we call communion, okay? So a meal, though, is what? In your household, at least in my house, uh, it's an intimate time. Probably the most intimate uh, invitation you can ever get from someone outside of your home is to say, why don't you come to my house This is what we're doing in family groups, by the way, and let's share a meal. So when our family groups meet, one of the primary things that we have said, like, this is a non-negotiable, is the meal, right? The Bible study is important, okay? And it's very important, but the Bible study, apart from the meal, prevents us from really knowing one another, because what happens in a meal? You think about the pace of life that we live in. We're going to talk about pace too, okay? Uh, because there's a lot of waiting around, particularly for Moses, but also for the people of Israel as are at the, the base of the mountain and they're looking up and, they're like, gosh, how long until Moses comes back? But for us, it's a way for us to slow down. It's a way for us to, what does it say, to slow down for six days and then God speaks. Our pace of life is so hurried. We're constantly from one thing to the next thing or we're picking up our phones to respond to an email or to schedule a meeting or to make sure that we do what we need to do as far as homework or studying. And it's, it's just bang, 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 bang. And yet, during a meal, you stop and you slow down. You breathe, hopefully, or you choke, right? Uh, so we slow down at a meal. But it's an act of friendship. It's a sacred space. and God's inviting them into this meal because he wants to... He wants to commune with them. He wants to dine with them. Now, don't think that God needed the the food to nourish his body, right? That's not what the Bible says, and and God doesn't have a body. But he does want to dine with us. This is what we see throughout the New Testament. Jesus is often gathering around a table, and it's usually around the table where he's doing his greatest work. Who is it that he's inviting around his table generally? It's sinners. It's people who are far from God. It's the lost. It's the least. It's the broken. It's the ones who are far from God. It's the ones that culture and the community and society and everyone around them is saying, you're not worthy to sit at this table. And Jesus says, well, I'm going to come to your table and we're going to dine together. This is ultimately the gospel call that we're invited into God's table. We're invited in. We've said it like this a hundred times here at the branch, but we're given a seat at a table where we don't belong. We're given a seat at a table where only life is allowed to live, and yet all we bring to the table is our death, but it is through Christ that we receive life, and through that life is this great invitation to feast. And so when we go to the table week after week, I've been asked that question, I don't know how many times over the last years, why do we take communion every week? Because we think it's important to slow down and to commune with God, to share a meal. We do it. Generally, we're going to do it today, but on a normal Sunday, you're waiting in line as a family. It's a beautiful picture. If you could ever just stand up here and watch the people, and we'll do it today on a micro scale, but this is when people just go and they flood to the back, and you can see that, that intimate moment. In, that is genuine worship as you take the bread and you dip it in the cup. But there's coming another feast from Revelations 19, uh, Verse 9, it, it talks about the marriage feast of the Lamb. And this is a, a, a kind of a look into that, that feast, that meal, that one day that we will dine with Jesus. And what a glorious day that will be. I think that on that day, God will welcome everyone who trusts in Jesus. And we sit down and we're participating in a meal that never ends. Have you ever had a meal that you just usually... The Tardonias are here. When we go to the Tardonias' house, it's kind of one of those meals where you're like, I hope this never ends. And they're cool. It's not really f- to hang out with them, but it's the food is majestic, right? Have you had those meals? Think about Thanksgiving, right? What's the beauty of Thanksgiving? Yes, is the food. But it's the presence of the people that you love. And this is eventually what one day we will experience without end. And that is the glory of the Christian gospel. A feast without end. The Bible uh, doesn't tell us what they ate. We talked about this, but it could have been uh, just the leftovers. The most important thing for us to realize is that it was a covenantal meal, right? When we stand uh, at a wedding, we exchange vows. We enter into a covenant that's generally symbolized with a ring, and yet Christ does it with his body and his blood, and then he invites us to partake it, Okay. So let's move on to cha- uh, verse 12. The idea here is that God has graciously continued to give his people instruction. Okay. Now, if you're a parent in the room, uh, instruction is an ongoing progress report, right? It's where you say, hey, I don't think you should do that. And then about 35 seconds later, you remind them that they probably shouldn't do that. And then every 30 to 60 seconds, you're going to do that for a day or two before they do it. And then they get hurt and they don't do it, right? So this is what's happening with Israel. God has been reminding them not to do something, right? This is what we see in the commands, but he's also reminded them to do some things which they have not done. One of the great prayers that, um, from the history of the church is, uh, Lord, forgive us for the things that we have done against your will, and forgive us for the things that we've left undone, right? So sin goes in both ways. Sometimes uh, apathy enters in, or laziness enters in, and we leave things that God has called us to do undone. That is also sin. But listen to verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain, and what is the word there? Come on, I can call you out by name today. We wait, okay? And wait. Come up to me on the mountain and wait, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their what? For their instruction who gives instruction? Someone who cares for the other, right? If you have learned something, now this isn't God's experience, but this is my experience as a parent, and that's really the only context I have to be able to share, but you share with your children out of a past experience, generally from something that your parents had warned you not to do that you have done, and then you wear the wounds of that, and now you're trying to pass on to the next generation things that you shouldn't do. And God, in his grace, is patiently instructing his people. Now, he doesn't stop at the base of Mount Sinai. So when Moses comes back down, we know this. We've, we've spoiled this alert so many times that they have sinned. They have created an idol. And when Moses comes down, God continues to pursue his people to the point that eventually he will send his son. Okay, God never stops pursuing his people. Listen to verse 13. So Moses rose. I love the immediate response. There was a time when Moses wouldn't immediately respond to God. He would say, I don't think so, or I'm not good enough, or I'm not ready yet. But this just says, so Moses got up, and he went with his assistant, Joshua. And Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait. So do you see how Moses is leading his people? God has called who to wait? He's called Moses to wait, and God turns around to the elders. Now, these are the leaders of Israel, okay? There's 70 of them out of at this point, is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions, okay? So, or maybe just millions. Let's just take out the hundreds, okay? But millions of people, okay? And he's saying, wait here as I go into the presence of the Lord. He does that because he cares for the people. Just like God is caring for Moses by making him wait as his glory descends on the mountain, Moses is telling the people to wait because he cares for them. He's going to receive an instruction that will change the trajectory of their history. But he also is caring for them by providing. It says at the end there, whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. If all the elders ascend to the mountain, there is no one to govern the people. And so Moses leaves the elders and they are to take care. So if a dispute arises, there is someone to do that. But at this point, God has been extremely gracious and patient to the people Of Israel. Moses is telling them to wait so that they can learn how to rest. This is an act of Sabbath. Okay, what do we see in verse 15? It says, Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. Six days. So for six days, Moses, this is, this is not in the Bible, okay? This is pure conjecture. For six days, Moses tells the elders to wait. But he also tells Israel to wait. So if you have a mountain, I'm not sure the best way to do this with my arm, but so the base of the mountain, this is where Israel is. They start to go up the mountain and the elders get stuck kind of halfway up the mountain. And God is calling Moses to the peak of the mountain. For six days, He's waiting. Okay? But just think about your life. Or let me just talk to you about my life. If you have me wait for six days, I'm growing very impatient. I'm extremely concerned. Okay? I don't know what to do. I'm calling everyone that I know. Really, I'm probably going to do that after 60 minutes. Okay? If you call me to come meet you somewhere, and I'm waiting for six days, in my mind, as Moses, I'm panicking. Did I not hear from the Lord? Is this an evil spirit? Does God exist? Right? Are you sure that he's called me? But it's not just Moses who's called to wait. It's also the elders who are called to wait. And it's also Israel who has a perfect view up the mountain of what God is doing that is changing the trajectory of Israel. So all of Israel now has been called to wait. And so really, I, I think for us, the importance is when we seek the face of God. And I hope you have seasons in in your life where you're doing that in a deep and robust way with people in your life who care and love you. But when you're in a season where you're dependent on the response of God, sometimes God's response doesn't come when you ask for it, does it? Sometimes we ask for healing that never comes. Sometimes we ask for provision that is delayed. And yet God is still good. God is still victorious. One of the, the most constant rebuttals I get particularly from young people about the gospel is how you've heard this how could a good God let and then it's just a machine gun of negative things evil darkness death depravity sin how could a good God let and yet in the midst of it they are missing the glory of God Because God has called his people to wait. We are in a season of waiting. We did this at Christmas in Advent. Advent really just means a waiting upon the Lord, the coming of the Lord. We're in a second Advent as we wait for the consummation of Christ when he comes and makes all things new. And yet Israel is standing looking from the base of the mountain up the mountain, and what do they see? They see clouds, and they see fire. I'm sure somebody had to have asked the question, I don't think Moses is coming back. I mean, I don't know if you've ever, like, what do you do at a fire? Uh, Dudes in the room are like, you know, I love fires, but I just can't stop looking at them, right? So can you imagine, oh, that's what all the elders of Israel are doing. They're just like stuck in a gaze at the mountain. And even that imagery, God has wired us to look upon the fire, and it consumes us. Right? But this isn't the first time we've seen fire. This isn't the first time we've seen cloud. We saw a fire earlier in Exodus when, when God is calling Moses and really trying to pull him into, hey, Moses, this is the Lord. I've called you to lead my people. And what happens? He calls Moses up, and there's a bush, and the bush catches on fire, but the bush is not consumed. There is fire, but there is no ash what a beautiful picture of what God does. He burns things without burning them up. Because his very presence there can be no ash. There can be no debris. That ultimately is what the gospel is trying to teach us. Right? As God renews us, we are ashes to ashes, we are made new. Okay? Dead things becoming living things. Burned up things becoming whole like this bush. It's consumed with fire, but it's not burned up. When Israel leaves Egypt, where, how does God lead them? He leads them with smoke and fire. It's a provision. It is a, the presence of God. It's a visible manifestation of his invisible glory. We've talked a lot about theophanies throughout the course of Exodus. If there's any other seminary word that you're probably going to take out of the study of Exodus, it's going to be theophany, which is this tangible expression of God. He is in the fire, yet he is not fire. It's an amazing thing. But if you get too close to fire, it hurts, becomes scary. And I think that's what is happening to the people of Israel at the base of the mountain, right? They become fearful. But Moses, you'd have to think, is walking confidently into the cloud because it's not the first time that God has called them, called him into the flame. Let's go back. Verse 17 says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. A devouring fire seems like a pretty big one, I don't know, I'm no scholar, but it sounds big. Verse 18 then says Moses entered the cloud, and he went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. One of the real beauties, and you've already heard Rob talk about this this morning, but one of the beauties of our church structure is family group. And what I love about the way that we do family group more than I love anything else, minus the meal, okay, is how we study the Bible. So if you're not familiar, if you're in the room and you're, you're familiar, then this is just a reminder. But we study the passage before we preach the passage. So this passage, you studied last week. And the passage you'll study this week, we're going to preach next week. And the reason we want to do that is because if you're solely dependent on me to teach you the Bible, then God's not teaching you, God's not growing you in, in fullness, right? As, as wonderful as a preacher as I am... I'm not great. I can't be your only exposure into the Bible. Neither can Andrew or Jared or anyone else who ever steps up here. You have to learn to read your Bible for yourself. And so that's what we're doing. That's what we're practicing in family group. But one of the questions, the reason I like family group in this way is because it helps me write sermons. So what happens in a family group? Oh, hey, I don't understand. What does this mean? Oh, I was already going to talk about that on Sunday, right? And then you add it. But one of the questions, and I know it came up in a lot of groups this week, is what is the significance of the number forty? And so, what I want to do is I just want to rattle off some of that, okay? And um, and hopefully, what you'll understand is that we're pretty fluid when we're up here, okay? So if we have something and we're like, oh, you know what, this is a pretty big thing in our family groups, then we're going to address it because we want to help and guide and lead and shepherd, okay? So, what is the significance of the number forty? I think the as you look at the number forty throughout Scripture, and there's a There are a bunch of references, okay? Um, It's generally associated with trial or hardship, okay? And I I think I'll prove that here in just a second, but I do want to give a warning, okay? And and I'm not accusing anyone who's asked the question about the significance of 40, but this is just a disclaimer, okay? I think that God doesn't call us to search for secret meanings in the Bible, okay? 40 could just be a number, and that's perfectly okay. Sapphire could be actual sapphire or some other kind of rock. It doesn't really matter. They saw God. Okay? So that's the point. So hear my heart as we do this, okay? Um, I just want to remind us that 2 Timothy uh, 3 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. So everything we need to know is right here. Okay? Everything we need to be equipped by God is given to us by God, and it's in your hands or it's right next to your Instagram app, okay? Don't get distracted. So where else do we see the number 40 in the Bible? I'm going to give you some examples. So in the Old Testament, uh, God destroyed the earth with water, right? We saw this in Genesis chapter 7. He caused it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. This is the flood, okay? This is Noah and the ark. They were on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. Acts seven actually points us back to Exodus. It says after Moses killed the Egyptian, he fled to Midian for forty days, or for forty years in the desert tending to flocks. Moses was on Mount Sinai. This is the passage we get right here at Exodus twenty-four for forty days and forty nights. Moses again, his whole life is around forties, right? Moses interceded in Deuteronomy chapter nine. He interceded on Israel's behalf for forty days and forty nights. Deuteronomy, uh, later in Deuteronomy chapter 25, the law specified a maximum number of lashes a man could receive for a crime, setting the limit to 40. Jesus received 39 uh, multiple times. The Israelite spies took 40 days to spy out Canaan from Numbers chapter 13. Deuteronomy 8, the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the desert before finally entering the promised land. Uh, Samson, does anyone know Samson's story? We haven't talked about Samson uh, as long as I've been here, but this is from Judges chapter 13. Before Samson's deliverance, Israel served the Philistines for 40 years. Goliath taunted Saul's army for 40 days before David shot him in the face. Okay. Uh, Elijah fled Jezebel. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. And then in the New Testament... Uh, Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights and probably one of the most gut-wrenching episodes in the entire Bible, the Son of God being tempted and the, the faithfulness and the authenticity that he displays, uh, specifically in Matthew chapter 4, is, um, is, is pretty amazing. Uh, and Then Acts chapter 1, there were 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. Those are just a handful, okay? So what's the significance? You tell me. I think it's a number that God uses to specifically tell us something about his character. It's not a Houdini word. It's not a Houdini number. It's just a number that God has used. Because at 40 days, your body begins to what? If you go 40 days without sustenance, you don't survive. So God is testing. He's using this number as a a trial number. Does that make sense? I hope that was a little helpful. If you need those references, uh, I can get them to you as well, okay? Uh, there are others. That's not a full list, all right? I probably missed a handful. So what about us? What about us? God calls us to worship too, doesn't he? He calls us uh, to dwell in his presence. There's no, there's no fire here, not, at least not yet, <laughs> this morning. And yet his presence is fully here. What I love about where our church is right now is like we can, we visibly feel the impact of a holiday, right? And rain and time change, you know. Uh, But we're here and God's promise to us is it only takes two, right? Wherever two or more are gathered, there I'll be. That's a promise. It's part of his covenant to us, fulfilled through Christ. So he calls us to worship him. So what do we learn? What do we need to, how do we respond here? Well, one, we're not we don't have to make it to the top of the mountain anymore. The top of the mountain has come down. The presence of God is no longer a a cloud of fire on the top of Mount Sinai. Christ has come and He has dwelled among us. That's it. He is now among us. We can sit down and slow down and enjoy the feast because God has forgiven our sins. You no longer have to carry around big tablets of stone which must have felt like an anchor. Again, that's just that's me talking. We don't have that. We now have freedom in Christ. So I want to read from John chapter 1 verse 14 says the word became flesh. You know this. And what? Dwelt. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later in verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God. This is now going all the way back to the beginning, where it says, They saw Him. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Jesus came down so that we could see God clearly, face to face. Fully known. We now are fully known through Christ. The story of Exodus really is the story of us. They were drawn out of bondage. They were drawn out of Egypt and into the promised land, just as we have been drawn out of our sin, and into the promises of God through Christ. And I know this is, this is an Easter message but, or point. Death doesn't win. It doesn't win, no matter what. Death doesn't win. On this side of Christ's return, it hurts. It still stings pretty good. But it never wins, not once, not with Jesus and not with us. That's the power of the gospel. That's why we take communion every week. It is our declaration that Christ has won he is the great victor who never was defeated. And so as you go to the table, I'm just going to say it the way that it is. There are less people here today. Take your time at the table. Enjoy it. Next week, maybe not. I might have to rush you a little bit. But today, dwell there. Don't, you don't have to come back to you. You can do whatever you want in this gym, within reason. But go and dwell with God. God has come to dwell with us. So would you enjoy the feast of communion this morning, maybe differently than you have in a while, as you take the bread and you dip it in the cup? Be reminded that Christ has come down to us to draw us to himself. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for this morning. We are thankful for a place, a facility that we can meet in and to freely talk about the things of you. And so, God, I pray now as we enter into a time of worship that you would just remind us of who you are. I pray that we would enjoy the feast, that we would dwell at the table God, I pray that for brothers and sisters who are here this morning who may be carrying the weight of life's circumstance, that you would help them to find freedom that can only be found in Christ. And maybe today as they take the bread and dip it in the cup, that that would be the refreshment needed to refresh their soul. So Lord, we love you. We trust you.